calendar to speak tonight, um, but since he was uh, down in Florida to visit his, or to be there for his brother's graduation, um, it's my privilege to be able to be back. I'm in 1 Samuel, the first chapter, um, and as I've had occasion on these Sunday nights to preach this year, I've turned our focus to some prayers of the Old Testament and maybe more specifically, some prayers of the Old Testament, some folks who did some praying, um, starting with Adam and Abraham. And a couple of months ago, we looked at Moses, the great intercessor, who went into the tabernacle and prayed for 40 days for his people. And many of you joined us for those 40 days that we looked to the Lord and prayed and uh, prayed for one another and asked him to bless us and to revive our hearts and um, tonight we take our attention, and I think it's fitting that on Mother's Day we would talk about Hannah and her specific prayer. Um, Hannah is a remarkable woman. We have a Hannah in our church, at least one that comes to mind. I'll probably be reminded later that there's another one. If you're going to name a young lady after a character in the Bible, you'd have a hard time finding a better one than Hannah. And uh, we'll see why as we move through things this evening. I'm going to start reading in verse number one of First uh, Samuel chapter 1, the Bible says, Now there was a certain man of a certain place of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, uh, Jehoram uh, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina, and Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice under the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons Eli, uh, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord were there. Um, can we just ponder for a minute the words that we've just read? Uh, the scripture says this man Elkanah had two wives. Now this is the book of First Samuel. Uh, if you go back and you look at the table of contents in your Bible, we know the Bible begins with the book of Genesis, followed by the book of Exodus, followed by the book of Leviticus, right? Numbers and Deuteronomy. Those are the five books of the law. And we know specifically in the book of Exodus, God gave the law to Moses. And among those ten, we'll just focus on the ten that we all think of immediately. In chapter 20, he said, you will not commit adultery. Um, as the law was amplified and expanded on, the scripture made it very clear that God's plan from the very beginning, in fact, even before the law, all the way back in the book of Genesis, therefore, the Bible says, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. So if one man and one woman equals one flesh, as soon as we add a third party, we have a problem, Right? We have a legal problem because the law says it's not supposed to be. We have an ethical and moral problem because God said from the very beginning of time that's not how it's supposed to be. Yet the Bible tells us, clear as we can read the words, he had two wives. Hmm. So we think immediately, well, this must be a very immoral, horrible sort of person. But the next verse tells us, verse number three, this man went up out of his city yearly to what? Worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts. Um, can I tell you that the story of Hannah is set in some confusing circumstances? Because there's not a way for us to draw a line and say, oh, El Elkanah was a good man, an example of a fine husband and a godly father. Because we have that two-wife thing. 
Uh, on the other hand, we can't say, well, he's an evil, wicked rebel who wanted nothing to do with God because he took of his time and his energy and his money and he made this annual pilgrimage to Shiloh to sacrifice to the Lord. And I'm reminded when I read these kinds of passages that sometimes the world doesn't feel like it's changed that much because sometimes some of us find ourselves living in some confusing circumstances. Uh, I am told that in 2023 in the United States of America, Every third child born in this country is born out of wedlock. And if we turn that number around and we say, well, of the two out of three that are born within a marriage, I would remind you very quickly that marriage is no longer defined the way that it was defined even 15 years ago in our country. And so some of those kids are being born into families that are, um, let's just say, not traditional. Right? Um, it used to be in the olden days... I should get my t-shirt on so that you know uh, that I'm at that weird age that it was not uncommon for someone to be born into a household and when he got to the point of having his own children, his same father and his same mother who he met back on that day were all still living in the same house and they would celebrate the birth of that child together. That day is gone, isn't it? Now, those of you that work in schools, you know you can't just assume that a child's last name is the same as his parents' last name. You've got to do some investigative work to figure out who goes where and who fits with what. And some of us find ourselves in families, maybe even through no fault of our own. This was just sort of what I came into. It's what I was born into. Uh, culturally, what Elkanah did was absolutely normal and accepted. His first wife, Hannah, could not have children. And the worst thing that could happen to a Hebrew man was not to have a son to carry on the family name. And so cultural law allowed for him to take a second wife who could bear a child for him so that his name would continue. You might remember there was another fellow way back in the book of Genesis who found himself in a similar situation. And when he couldn't have a child, it was his very wife who suggested, here's another woman for you. And he said, well, that's unthinkable today. Really? Pay attention. We're starting to have new words introduced into our vocabulary in the United States. We're starting to learn about polyamory, which basically means sin all under the same roof, but we're polite about it. And we've just learned that this is now part of the, the new reality that we're supposed to get used to. I pity the poor child that grows up trying to figure out who's my mom, who's my dad, who's my grandpa, and how does this guy fit in and who's she? Where, where does the family tree go? I just want to make sure that we have that setting in our mind as we continue through the rest of the story. Um, Jacob had a similar situation. You remember, it wasn't only Abraham. Jacob decided he loved this woman, Rachel. Do you remember? And uh, she, of all of the other women in his family, uh, he had uh, another wife, and then he had the two handmaids. And so there were four women attached to Jacob, and three of them were just spouting out children like it was nothing to, you know, no problem. And poor Rachel, the one that he loved, could not. And the Bible says there was this intense rivalry between those women. Do you remember? And we have the same situation here. The Bible says in uh, verse number four, when the time came that Elkanah offered he gave to Penina, his wife, to, to all her sons and all her daughters' portions. Notice that, to all her sons and all her daughters. This one was having no trouble having children. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. It wasn't just enough that Penina was having children. Penina rubbed it in every chance she got. And so here's Hannah 
trying to figure out why it is that she wasn't having babies, why it is that she couldn't provide to her husband the one thing that a Hebrew woman felt like she was sort of obligated to do, and then she's got this other woman in the house, and I'm really tempted to imitate that Dave McCracken voice right now, but I won't. Just saying, na 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 here's another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. And the Bible says it provoked her sore. That's King James Version for it ticked her off. It made her angry. And why wouldn't it? Hannah, or Elkanah, is described in this passage as not only being devoted to the Lord, but being devoted to his wife. He was kind to her. He came to her that time of sacrifice, and he said, why are you so sad? Aren't I to you like ten Sons, don't I, don't I take care of you? Don't I fulfill your needs? I, am I not loving and kind? Yeah, but that didn't scratch the itch, did it? I want to have a child. I want to have a son. Uh, the Bible says that she was not only a woman living in these confusing circumstances, but she was literally a grief-stricken woman. Look at verse 5. Hannah, he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, and the Lord had shut up her womb. Verse 6, her adversary also provoked her, provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. Two times in two verses, we read the same phrase, the Lord had shut up her womb. Let's not make a mistake. Hannah was not the casualty of some natural phenomenon. It wasn't just the luck of the draw. The Bible says very specifically it was a determination and an action on the part of the Lord that kept her from having children. Well, where's the goodness of God in that? I thought God was kind and loving and, and, and he always took care of his own, those who loved him. Hang on, we haven't gotten to the end of the story. Uh, there are times the scripture tells us that the Lord does things so that he might be glorified. You remember the disciples came to the Lord and they pulled up this specimen, this sick man, and they said, hey, theological question. The disciples were such loving, compassionate types, weren't they? Let's just drag him up to the Lord. Who sinned? This one or his parents? Who sinned? He's a sick man. And you remember the Lord's response? Neither. Neither his parents sinned nor did he sin. This has happened to him. Why? So that God might be glorified. Listen, there are some things that happen in life and we scratch our heads and we say, I don't understand the plan. So the best we can do is pray, God, please somehow glorify yourself even in this. Amen. And maybe when we get to the end of it and we see what God does and we see how the circumstances all pan out, we begin to understand, wait a minute, maybe God planned all of this in the beginning so that we could get to this point. Um, Penina provoked her with all of her sons and all of her daughters. I told you that that word to provoke in verse number six means to anger her. It made her fret. Uh, that the word to fret there literally means to eat or to consume. Have you ever been eaten by something or consumed by something? You get a thought or a concern or a weight or a burden or a worry and it just begins to whittle away at you. I've watched people worry themselves into physical illness. And it's all here, right? It's all here. It's just the pressure of that thing that continues to be there. It, it got to the point, the Bible says in verse number, um, I want to find it specifically, verse number 10, she was in bitterness of soul. Uh, bitterness of soul, that's a phrase that's usually used in the Old Testament for someone who is mourning the death of someone. This wasn't bitterness that was anger towards God. This was a woman who was absolutely grief-stricken over her condition. I have no child. I have this other woman in my house. 
bringing one son, one daughter after the next to my husband who provokes me with it day and night. Now, all of us can't put ourselves specifically in the case of Hannah, right? I warned my wife today that I was going to preach on Hannah, and I'll tell you why. Uh, We were married eight and a half years before the Lord brought our boys into our lives. And I often tell people, you know, when you're married eight and a half years and you haven't had any children, people get real funny around you. Uh, The first year or two after you're married, it's, oh, it's great, congratulations, how's married life, right? And then about year two or three, they start saying, and, and, right? You go see your parents, and. You start seeing friends you went to school with, married, they've got their first two, and. There's no and. We're married. And, there's no and. After about year five or six, they start saying, "You, you, you do know how it happens, right? Yes, yes, we do know. By year seven and eight, there's an awkward silence. Oh, we just had our fourth child, child. We were sort of in that stage, the awkward, silent stage. And Betty Ann had gone to a mother-daughter dinner, banquet, tea. I don't even know what it was, but she'd been to some, one of these other events. And somehow, apparently, I don't know because I've never been to one of these, oftentimes these speakers feel as though there's some obligation at some point to speak to the ladies in the room who are neither, well, who are not yet mothers or who aren't mothers. Or, and so they insert something about Hannah, hope. Betty Ann came home and she said, if I have to listen to one more sermon about Hannah, I've had it with Hannah. I'm not Hannah. I I don't have that kind of spirit of Hannah, right? Why? Because after a while, you just feel like I'm just beaten and beaten and beaten. And so I just, I don't want to hear anymore. Here's the good news. When we get to that place, the Lord still knows who we are and his plan is still unchanged. Some of you in this room tonight are grief-stricken over something. I I don't know what it might be. Um, The the loss of a loved one. Um, For some, this is the first Mother's Day without mom. Boy, it's things in a way you didn't expect, right? For some of you, this is the 15th Mother's Day without mom. And it still stings in a way you didn't expect. Um, maybe in your brain 15 years ago, you had a sort of a different trajectory for your life and, it, and it hasn't, you're not where you thought you were going to be then. Life hasn't been kind to you and the circumstances haven't always rolled the way that you thought they would. And if we're not careful, those sorts of things can begin to consume us. They can begin to eat at us. They can begin to weigh us down. The Lord warned us about the cares of this world and boy, there are a bunch, aren't there? What is that thing that the adversary can use? The old devil himself sneaks up and says, what about this thing? Where's God's promise here? Where's the evidence of God's presence there? The good news about moving through that kind of um, tragedy and that kind of grief and that kind of burden is that it can, if we allow it to, draw us even closer to the Lord. The second chapter of 1 Samuel contains for us Hannah's prayer. It is a song of thanksgiving, thanking God for the response for the prayer that we're about to talk about in a minute. There is no song in the Old Testament that contains more theology, theology proper, the study of God himself, than Hannah's prayer. 
I would encourage you sometime when you have the opportunity, you can dig in and you will see that in that prayer, Hannah spoke of the Lord's omniscience, that God knows everything. She spoke of the Lord's omnipresence, that God is everywhere. She spoke of God's omnipotence, that God can do anything. She spoke of God's unchanging nature. That's what the theologians like to call immutability. God can never be more or less than he is. She spoke of God's self-existence. She spoke of God's eternality. She spoke of God's holiness. She spoke of God's justice. If you and I were sitting in a systematic theology class, we could go straight to Hannah and her song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and we could study the doctrine of God right there. This is a remarkable woman. Hannah, in fact, may be the godliest woman mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, She is the only woman in the Old Testament, specifically said, who went up to the Lord's house. She is the only woman that we see in the Old Testament making and fulfilling a vow to the Lord. She is the only woman who specifically is said to pray in the Old Testament. Her prayer is one of the longest in the Old Testament. Hannah speaks the name of Jehovah more than any other woman in the Old Testament. Unlike Sarah, she didn't resort to crafty schemes, but rather went straight to the Lord as a result of her bitterness. And finally and ultimately, and you know how this story ends, she gave her child back to the holy living God. She didn't say, I need a son so that I can wrap him in my arms and I can hold him and I can sing lullabies to him. She said, I need a son so that your name can be glorified. And if you will give me that son, I will hand him back to you. How often do we pray for things that we're just asking the Lord, please give it to me so that I can cling to it. Please give it to me so that it fulfills some sort of need that I think I have. Please give it to me so that somehow I will be satisfied by this thing. Rather than by saying, Lord, please give me this thing so that your name might be glorified and my enemies will have to be quiet. Because you have proven yourself great. She says in verse number 11, When she begins this prayer, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, um, pause, Uh, that same phrase shows up in verse number three, Elkanah came to worship and sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts. This is the first time in the Bible that particular phrase is mentioned, the Lord. You know what that is, that's Jehovah, right? That's the very personal name of God. Hosts refers to the multitude. Uh, He is the Lord, he is the sovereign over the angels of heaven. Sometimes that phrase is used when it speaks of the Lord being sovereign over the armies of Israel. Uh, Sometimes the hosts refer to the bodies, the planetary bodies that are in the skies. But the abstract idea of the fact is that God is the Lord over all things. It carries with it the idea of numberlessness and plentifulness. She went to God who was the unending resource to find the need fulfilled that she had at that time. Our, Our God is not cheap. He's not stingy. He's not unable to dole out many things. Now this morning, ladies, you got cupcakes, you got muffins. Some of you even took the gluten-free. Good for you. And uh, my job, my task this morning was to go stand at the table. That was my place to be. And I smiled and I said to every mom that came, Happy Mother's Day, take the red velvet, they're going fast. And they did. Do you know really why I was there? Does anybody really want to guess why I was assigned that table? What's that? No, not leftovers. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Anybody else want to guess? So that people got one. Yes. So that some people got one, moms, and so that other people got none. I'm not calling any names. I'm not. I'm not going to say a word. I don't want anybody to think anything, right? Why? 
because we're stingy. We had a hundred of those things. That's as far as they could go. Aren't you glad to know that God doesn't have just a hundred cupcakes? He's got whatever we need. You need more cupcakes? Come on. We've got it. You need muffins, gluten-free, sugar-free, fat-free, taste-free. We've got them all. Whatever you need in the moment, God is there to supply your need. Why? Because he cares for us. And I am convinced of this. There are times that God closes something up for no other reason than to drive us to our knees and to cause us to move to him as quickly as we can and say, God, I cannot solve this problem. Hannah knew she was hopeless. Hannah knew there was nothing else she could do, but Hannah had come to know who the Lord was. She knew he was omnipotent, omnipresent. Do I have to read the list again? Through her tragedy and through her difficulty, she began to find out specifically who God was. And the more that she knew him, the more that she began to understand, I can go to the Lord of hosts, the God of plentifulness, and I can ask him for anything. Because he's not limited. And so I can go to my God and I can ask him for the impossible. I can ask him to give me what my husband cannot give me. I can ask him to give me what the culture cannot give me. I can ask him to give me what I cannot give myself because I know who my God is. I'm convinced sometimes we ask small things of the Lord because somehow we have figured out that God is small in our estimation. If I came to ask you for money, which one of these fellows on the front row should I ask for money? Why are you shaking your head? You got nothing? So if I'm going to ask you for money, I should ask for a little money? Not a lot of money? For no money. Caleb? What? Any, any, no, I got a whole bunch of no's. So here's what I've learned. If I need money, I got to go to the fifth row and see Swanee. He's wearing a tie and he's a coat. He's doing good. But he's a missionary. Hmm. There's a limitation. So if I'm going to ask for money, I may go to Swanee and I'll say, well, can I, can I borrow $5? I just need $5 to get gas to go home. And Brother Swanee's a good, kind, generous man, right? And probably if he had it, I, I think he would say, sure, I will lend you $5, sign this receipt, and bring it back, right? Right. Now, if I needed $50, if I needed $50, I might go one row further back. Dick, Dick's an accountant. He's already shaking his head. All accountants shake their head. That's what they do. That's the, do we have money to? No, no, that's what they do. But I know. I know. And, and maybe, maybe if I said, man, I need $500. Well, I'd, I'd go to Miss Brenda because she just looks kind. And, and I know she's got $500 and she'd happily lend it to me. But you know what we do sometimes? We say, well, my Lord, it's kind of like Caleb. How about 40 cents? And we make a 40 cent prayer out of a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Rather than just telling him, this is what I need. See, I know no matter who I ask in this room, you might be generous, you might be compassionate, you might do what you can, but every one of us in this room has a limit, right? The number only goes so high, regardless of how high the number is. But with our God in heaven, there is no number. We need to stop thinking about prayer as some sort of quantitative thing and understand it's a quality thing. Lord, give me what it is that I need, that you know that I need, for your glory and for your honor. This woman not only saw the blessing of an answered prayer, do you remember the Bible said she was in such distress that Eli the priest, now there's a spiritual giant, hmm? Isn't it interesting in verse number three, the scripture reminds us Hophni and Phinehas were the priests there. You're all Old Testament scholars. You remember those were two bad priests. 
So it was in that sort of circumstance that they came to worship when, when there was scandal going on and there was corruption going on and the house of God was not what it was supposed to be. She ignored those men and she went straight to the place where she could pray. I want to remind you, in case you've forgotten, Hannah was a woman. Did we keep that in mind? In this day, women were little more than property. She had no standing in the temple. She had no place to be. Men were required to be there, not women. Why would a woman come? But yet she went straight to the Lord, and the Bible says she was in such bitterness of soul as she poured her heart out to God, the words didn't even form on her lips. And here's the priest, now old, difficulty seeing, we learn in chapter number four, and he's watching her, and he sees those lips moving. Have you prayed like Hannah? Have you been there? Where your heart is so heavy, your spirit screams out, but the words just can't be formed. And there's somebody standing there watching. And what was his conclusion? Well, she must be drunk. I've, I've wondered for a long time why Eli came to that conclusion. Um, psychologists talk about something they call projection, where I see in you something that really is happening in me. And I'm thinking, was this old guy so drunk that he knew there were times when he couldn't even say the words that he needed to? Maybe he saw it in his sons. Maybe he'd seen it before somewhere. Whatever the case, he said to her, oh, put away the wine, put away the strong drink. She said, I haven't done, no. My soul is in bitterness and I am begging God to do something. The Bible tells us that the priest said to her, go home. Go home. Your prayer's been answered. And immediately she stopped praying and she went back to her place. This is a woman of faith. I've got nothing else to ask for. I've gotten my indication from the Lord that it's going to be done. And there she weaned her son, the Bible says, probably for about three years. She stayed home with Samuel until he was big enough, can you believe it, to take back to the temple and turn over to the priest. You remember Samuel? Samuel was that boy trying to get a night's rest one night when he heard the voice. Do you remember? And he went and woke up that old priest. Do you remember? Three times grumpy old priest. It took him a little while, but he finally said what? The next time you hear the voice, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Samuel goes back to his room, lays down on his little mat. You wonder how he could even begin to think about sleeping. That voice just kept coming, and sure enough, here comes the voice again, speak, Lord. And God gave to that boy. He was older than three by now, for sure, but he wasn't yet a man. God gave him that tremendous prophecy, horrible prophecy, against Eli and his household and said, God is done with you. What a way to start your ministry. But he's the same priest, the same priest that the Israelites came to years later and said, give us a king so that we can be like the other nations. He was the same priest. Now also a prophet and a judge filling that role for the nation of Israel. He was the same priest who one day was sent to the town of Bethlehem to go find a shepherd boy to anoint to be king. That same shepherd boy who years later was told by the Lord, your throne will be an everlasting throne, your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And we sing in the Handel's Messiah of his kingdom, there shall be no end. This little woman, Hannah, who simply believed that God was great enough to hear her and to respond to her prayer, was a part of the redemption story in providing to the world the very prophet, priest, judge who would anoint David, king of Israel. Was God glorified? Oh yeah, God was glorified. 
What do you dare ask the Lord for? What do you dare ask the Lord for? Not to use on yourself, not to show off to the rest of the world. But what is it that God might want to do through you? If we simply allowed him to do so. Let me ask you three questions. Are your circumstances a disaster? Hers were. Are you limited, weak, and afflicted? Those were all words assigned to Hannah. Is your situation hopeless? If you answered yes to any of those three questions, let me suggest that you do as Hannah did and get to know God and trust him for who he is and commit yourself to his glory. If, on the other hand, you listen to those three questions and you said, no, I, I, I would have to say no. So I'm going to suspect then that your circumstances are hunky-dory, that you are capable, strong, and confident, and that your situation is just fine. Are you there? What might God have to close in order to get your attention? What might he have to do to draw you to himself? To bring you to that place of recognizing your own limitations and his greatness. Our God is a good God. And there are times that he steps into our life and he throws up an obstacle. He throws up some sort of a burden, a roadblock. And Man, it's frustrating, isn't it? I have a very good friend. I went to school with him. He came to school to be a doctor. He knew that God wanted him to become a physician. Probably would have been Nathan's boss by now because he's a zillion years old like I am. And somewhere along the way, the Lord started doing some things to him that just seemed terrible to all of us. We didn't know God was doing it. He was clumsy enough. He fell up a flight of stairs. Yes, he fell up a flight of stairs, fractured his knee, laid in the bed for weeks. His grades suffered, everything suffered. They told him, you might have to leave school by the end of the semester if you can't pull all of these things together. But there, in those circumstances, on that hospital bed, God began working in his heart. It changed the path and the direction of his life and sent him to the mission field where he served for 40-some years doing the work of the Lord. Some of you have other testimonies where you could say, I was on this trajectory, I was going to go do this thing, and God stopped me, and he did something that changed me, and I don't know why. I know some of your stories. I won't share them here. You don't want me to. I know. But sometimes our God is so good as to do something that annoys us. And he sends a rival to us to tick us off and to make us bitter of soul. He sends some sort of a hardship or a conflict. He closes something up so that he might bring us to himself. When he does, let's fall on our face like Hannah. Let's find out who he is and commit ourselves to his glory. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you know us. It's hard for us to fully understand in our society, in our culture, how difficult this story would have been for a Jewish man to have read 1,500 years ago or 1,000 years before Christ, that you would be kind enough to a woman a barren woman, that you would be kind enough to her to hear and answer her prayer and to do more than that, to make of her answer a part of your redemptive plan. Help us to remember tonight how good you are. May we commit ourselves to you. Lord, many are carrying griefs, burdens. May we find ourselves in our prayer closet. 
maybe even unable to form the words, but in bitterness of soul, pouring our hearts out to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.